I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In January 2011, Ellen Greenberg was found dead in her apartment with 20 stab wounds to her head, neck, and stomach. This year marks the 10th anniversary of Ellen's death, and her family is still on a mission to find out what really happened and finally get justice for their only daughter. This is episode 47, The Ellen Greenberg Story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Great. Amy, I've really been looking forward to your coverage of this case ever since I saw that special on Oxygen. And I know you also had some help on today's episode. Yes. I'd like to thank Alexis Orphanadiakis for her help on this episode. And we have some supporters we'd like to thank. Megan, we have a number of supporters to thank today. All right. You want to start us off? All right, Megan. So today we have Julia Goman, Nikki Spencer, Erica F., who is a John Jay graduate. Ooh. Yes. We also Our have, alma mater. Yes. We also have Thomas and Nancy Newby. We've also got Johnny Avi, Claire, Lindsay Jonas, Latasha Venatter, and Amanda. Thank you so much. Megan, we have some new supporters from across the pond. Oh, fun. Who do we have? We have Christina Fischera and Sarah. Thank you mu- very much, ladies. We've had a couple of people from the UK write in about the Acorn series. Yes. So I, I, I think, think it's they been, liked it. Yeah. I think so too. And it's been really fun. It's great to get some new listeners in the UK. We're very lucky. Yeah. And I don't know about you, Megan, but I have a lot of UK cases on my list now. I do too. And I'm hoping that we can work with Acorn again because they were great. Yes. Another exciting event going on. We are teaming up with Maggie from Unjust and Unsolved 
and Brett and Alice from the prosecutors to do a deep dive on the Jeff McDonald conviction. You know, some say it was possibly a wrongful conviction. Anyway, we're doing that this week and we'll make it available to our patrons in the very near future. So stay tuned. And this week, we're also hosting a very special happy hour AMA for our patrons. And we're going to be discussing some cases that have been in the news lately. So come join us and dig in with us. Thursday, April 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Check out the Patreon link in our show notes if you are interested. Now, Megan, let's talk about today's case. Can't wait. Ellen Greenberg was born in New York City on June 23rd, 1983. She was the only child of Josh and Sandra Greenberg. Her father is a periodontist and her mother a dental hygienist. The family moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania when Ellen was about three years old. Ellen was described by her family and friends as being bubbly and outgoing and really a total girly girl. She was always smiling, very well liked at school. She went to Penn State University, where she was very involved in campus activities. She studied to become an educator. After graduating Penn State, she continued her studies at Temple University and then began working as a first grade teacher at Juanita Park Academy in Philadelphia. By all accounts, she was extremely dedicated to her profession and loved her students. Overall, she seemed to be a happy young woman, aside from some recent anxiety that she had began to suffer from. Ellen had claimed that her anxiety was mostly due to work stress and some students in her classes and just stuff going on at work. This is your early 20s, too. It's when you're, you know, you're just starting to get on your feet. You're transitioning yeah. from school to life. You don't necessarily have that much money. So I can Absolutely. see how this would be, you know, kind of a time with some anxiety. I remember. And she also was busy planning a wedding to 28-year-old Samuel Goldberg. Now, their wedding was coming up and was set for that August. Well, Amy, you planned a wedding. Isn't that stressful enough in itself, just planning a wedding? Yes, planning a wedding most people find extremely stressful. Now, Samuel Goldberg and Ellen had met about three years earlier on a blind date, apparently fell hard, fell fast. So they had been dating for about three years, and they had recently moved in together, living in Maniunk, an outskirt of Philadelphia. Now, Ellen's family and friends did explain that they had become a little bit concerned about her anxiety because she seemed to be a lot more worried and shut off and not as bubbly as she normally had been. Her father had urged her, because he was also in the medical profession, and he urged her to, you know, speak to someone. So she began seeing a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist prescribed her medication, and she appeared to be doing much better by all accounts. Okay. However, around this time, she had expressed to her parents that she wanted to move back home to Harrisburg with them. And this seemed quite odd to them because she had, again, been living with her fiancé, who sh she was planning to marry in just a couple of months. So why would she want to move home? Yeah, that's, I was going to ask. Okay. Yeah, it seems strange, but nobody ever heard her say anything ill of Samuel. And by all accounts, they really seemed to get along quite well. Okay. On January 26, 2011, Philadelphia was hit with a large blizzard. Because of this blizzard, Ellen left work early that day. They had about a half a day at school and then everyone was let go because of the storm. Right. Ellen had spoken to her mom that morning. Things seemed normal. After leaving her job, she stopped to fill up her tank with gas, and then she went home. And as I mentioned, she was living with her fiancé. They were living in Maniunk, which is outside of Philadelphia. It's kind of like a Hoboken. Have you been there? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, okay, great. It's considered a very trendy, cool area to live. So they were living in this really beautiful apartment building. What we know about that day is mostly from Ellen's fiancé, Sam. Okay. So there, there's no records that we're aware of. As happens in a lot of cases, we're relying on somebody's version of events because, unfortunately, Ellen's no longer with us to tell us the events of that day. Okay. And was he home? Yeah. So when Ellen returned home, according to Sam, 
They hung out until about 4.45 that day. Sam was also home, perhaps due to the storm. Maybe he's working from home. I'm not sure. He worked as a TV producer for NBC. Okay. Around 4.45 that day, Sam decided he wanted to head to the gym. They had a gym in their building. So he left Ellen alone, as he normally did, in their sixth-floor apartment and headed downstairs to the gym. Sam claimed he was at the gym for about a half hour, and he returned to the apartment only to find that the door had been locked. So he did have his it's a key fob that they have mm-hmm. in this building. So he had his key fob with him, but he went to turn the door and he found out that the swing bar. Oh, got you know, it. for those yep. of you who don't know, if you've ever been to a hotel, it's like that extra security bar. So he's that pissed. you can only you can only lock that from the inside. You can only you can only lock that from the inside. So it seems Sam says this was very strange because she knew he was at the gym. Why would she lock him out like that? So he starts banging on the door. And he starts texting Ellen. And this goes on for about 22 minutes. And we ha- well, we know what his texts say because it's in the reports. This text start by saying, hello, open the door. What are you doing? I'm getting pissed. Hello, you better have an excuse. What the fuck? Ah, you have no idea. I mean, I understand being aggravated because I would be as well. But that almost sounds like uh, threatening. And a lot of people felt that way, Megan. I'm going to disagree because I think that let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. You're having a shitty day. You went to the gym for only a half hour. Maybe you were not really into it. You just want to go home. You want to yeah. relax. And yep. you're okay. thinking, what is she on the phone? Why did she do this? You know, like okay. some Fair people enough. say it's weird. Like, why wouldn't he get worried? Why did he go so quickly to anger? But who who knows? Maybe she had a habit of doing this and they've spoken about it before. Who, True. It's True. hard to say. Either way, he did not have an answer after these 22-minute texts. So he goes downstairs to the security guard in the building to ask if the security guard can help him break into the apartment. And the security guard said, nope, I cannot do that because that's a liability. Okay. So Sam proceeds upstairs and he breaks into the apartment by kicking down the door. Wow. I thought he was going to call a locksmith. (laughs) Okay. No, he kicks down that door. Okay. And we can talk about whether how easy it is to kick down a door and... I wouldn't have thought so, but okay. Yeah. Sam breaks into the apartment and he is met by a brutal and horrific sight. Now, when you walk in this apartment, you open the door and you have a view straight into their kitchen. Okay. And what he sees is Ellen on the kitchen floor. She is propped up against a counter with her legs out in front of her, a clean white towel in her hand, and there is blood everywhere. Ellen was fully clothed in a hooded sweatshirt, sweatpants, and boots. Behind her on the counter, there was a strainer of fruit with freshly cut oranges There were also some blueberries, and there were two clean knives in the sink. Okay. There was no blood outside of the kitchen. There was just blood around her. Zero signs of a struggle. This includes no defensive wounds, which we'll talk more about. She was very clearly deceased when she was found. Megan, she had at least 20 stab wounds all over her body. Oh, my God. To her head, her neck, her chest, her abdomen. This varied from nicks to deep punctures. Just alone on the back of her neck, there were 10 stab wounds. On the back of her neck. On the back of her neck. And we're going to talk a lot more about these injuries because they're very central to this case. But let's just talk about what happens next. So Sam calls 911 at 622 p.m. This was around 40 minutes from the time he supposedly found her. Some reports say he called his mom and his uncle first. I don't know what to do with this information. I don't know how true it is. I didn't see it in the police report with my own eyes. So I don't want to put too much weight on that. Well, let's judge it in totality later on with all the circumstances. Okay. The 911 dispatcher instructed Sam to start CPR, which at first he says, do I have to, which seems strange to some. And then he proceeds to do so. But then he was instructed to stop because he tells the dispatcher that he noticed there was a knife still lodged in Ellen's chest. 
Oh my God. I'm not sure why he didn't see that at first and why it took him starting to do chest compressions to notice it. Like we're talking a kitchen butcher knife. The police and paramedics got there fairly quickly. By 6.40, Ellen was pronounced dead. She was pronounced dead on arrival. That might be, though, also why he asked, do I have to? Because if she was clearly mm-hmm. deceased, that's also a very yep. uncomfortable thing to do. So. That's true. And I want to point out, it's important to note here that the 911 call is not public. So this is only based on other people saying what the 911, but I've never seen a transcript nor heard it. Okay. When the police got there, immediately they noticed there were no signs of an intruder, which I don't know how they can say that because the door was kicked in, but Sam had told them the story and taking his word for it, they said, okay, well, the door was locked from the inside and there's no evidence that Ellen tried to flee. They looked on, they had a balcony and, the, you know, they were on the sixth floor, so they didn't really think anyone broke in that way or fled that way, but they had to look. Did they have fire escape? Um, they did not that I know of, okay. but they d- it was snowing out. Remember, it was a blizzard and there were zero tracks. So they the police were quickly like, okay, no forced entry. There's only blood in this area. There's no... They found absolutely no defensive wounds that you would expect if she had tried to fight off an attack by somebody who was yielding a knife at her. So this all led them to very quickly conclude Ellen must have killed herself. She had stab wounds to the back of her neck, though, and you said there's no defensive wounds. I'm thinking the reason there's no defensive wounds is because someone attacked her from behind first. Right. You would think it's a blitz attack. Uh, It does sound like that. I know there's some odd factors here, but that's also if you're... If you are inflicting this on yourself, that's an odd angle to try to stab yourself at the back of the neck. Megan, you have no idea. We're going to okay. We're going to spend most of the, this episode talking about those specific wounds and I I agree with you. This is really strange. So they're saying, "Oh, uh, you know, Ellen must have killed herself." Okay, so we're talking just on face value here. Somebody who's going to kill themselves are they going to make a fresh fruit salad? I was just about to ask you that so she prepared fresh fruit. And then decided she's going to kill herself. She fills up her gas tank. There's no note. It's, it's seeming strange. And obviously the stabbing the self is the biggest point that we're going to talk about. With Kizik Can's free shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. The police did what they had to do. They interviewed people in the building. They gathered surveillance footage. Unfortunately, there were no cameras in the hallway where their apartment is. Of course. But there were cameras at the entrance and exits, and they were able to say that there was no, you know, foreign people that entered the building. But that doesn't mean that someone who lives in the building couldn't have harmed her. Just going to say that. They also took several statements from neighbors, and every single neighbor claimed they didn't hear any screaming or commotion. The only thing they heard was Sam knocking on the door frantically, and then eventually knocking down the door. They also spoke to that doorman who Sam had asked for help. 
He corroborated the story Sam told him, but he did mention he thought it was odd because Sam said he was at the gym, but he was wearing boots and not sneakers. Interesting. Was there any gym surveillance? Do we know that he went to the gym? We don't know. Some sources say a key fob at least puts him going into the gym. Okay. But there was no exit, and I don't believe that there was footage. And if there was, then it wasn't easy for me to find. Got it. We do know that he left the apartment at 4.45, like he said, based on, since it's a key fob, they could see any time the door was open. So they know that door was opened at 4.45, and it. it was not opened again until Sam broke into it. Okay. No one in the building had reported seeing anyone strange or seeing or hearing anything suspicious. The day after Ellen's death, an autopsy was conducted. This is where things get really interesting. Again, she sustained 20 stab wounds ranging from 0.2 centimeters to four inches in depth. Was this, um, did they determine, sorry, that the the knife was on scene? Like nobody took a knife out. It was, the, the knife was. F- so there was the knife found in her chest. There was a butcher's block. Oh, right. But there were two knives in the sink. Okay. And the it. knives in the sink were clean, but they never tested them. For okay. trace evidence. And she's got the one in her chest. The I'm, one I'm in her chest. I'm forgetting that she had one. All right. So yeah, it's she left did. there. Okay. It is left there. And that's one of the ones that was four inches in depth. Oof. She also had 11 bruises scattered on her right arm, the right side of her abdomen, and her right leg. These bruises were described as being in various stages of resolution, which means that they were in different stages of healing, most likely caused in different time frames. So what, what are we thinking now? Abusive boyfriend. That's Maybe what I there's... would think. Domestic violence. Yeah, so now we're seeing she has these bruises that are in various stages. She's acting different. She's experiencing anxiety, talking about moving home. You know, this is... Yeah, I'm seeing the picture a little bit come yeah. together here. That's what I'm thinking. And an odd detail about these bruises is they were only found on the right side of her body. And these were pretty pronounced, enough so, like, not just like a stub your toe bruise. These were enough for them to really look at it. The police were quick to say they were probably from contact sports or exercise classes. I was going to ask if she was extremely active, but... By all accounts, she did yoga. That was I mean, her main exercise that, of you choice. You wouldn't have yeah. that many bru- I easily bruise, and at any given time, I have like two bruises on yeah. me, but two at most. And again, it was only on her right side. Interesting. Ellen sustained several injuries to the vertebrae in her neck, along with injuries to multiple different organs, such as the aortic arch, which is a portion of the heart that helps to distribute blood to the head and upper extremities. She also had injuries to the upper lobe of her left lung and her liver. In the autopsy, it didn't appear that the coroner could figure out what order the previous injuries had happened. Mm-hmm. And since there were so many injuries, it was a little difficult to see, you know, was she stamped in the chest before the neck? And it was, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about the order of these different wounds. That happens. I mean, I've definitely seen that happen in cases where they can't figure out the ordering. Mm-hmm. Regardless, though, the autopsy yielded manner of death as being a homicide due to the nature of the crime and the wounds. The police never told the family about this. What so, do you mean? Initially, the police said this is a suicide, and that's what they told the family. It's a suicide. Then the medical examiner says, nope, this is a homicide. So they changed the cause of death, never told the family. The family found out the day of the funeral from a friend who had heard about it on the news. That is absurd. Isn't that disgusting? Yeah, that's really absurd. How could the family not be the first to know? Can you imagine? The family probably already suspected they this. They did. I mean, they should have been notified, but based on the injuries, I wouldn't have believed it, it was a suicide. Yes, and the family is extremely vocal, and they say they did not believe it was a suicide, but to have that sprung on them and not being told personally, like, what evidence led them to change this conclusion? Must have been shocking. Once the medical examiner ruled this as a homicide, now we have the Philadelphia Homicide Unit stepping in to look more into Sam's timeline, look more into videos and history of key fob to see what actually went on. 
So like a proper investigation. A proper investigation. Sam was interviewed by the police during the days following, but nothing came of these interviews and Sam was quickly released. They did not, from the beginning, they did not believe that Sam was involved in his fiance's death. However, the content of the interviews were never released, so it's really hard for us to provide any analysis whatsoever. I bet they just saw him as, you know, a decent guy. He probably didn't have a criminal record. There's no history of violence, you know, so they're probably thinking, eh. But Megan, don't you find this strange? Anytime someone, first of all, any scene of a death should always be first viewed through the lens of a homicide. And then if the evidence says suicide, you don't ever start with a suicide and then go homicide. No, I don't. I don't think. Well, Unless actually, I don't think clear, you but. start with either. Um, usually you just collect the evidence, you know, like the crime scene, people would collect basically all of the evidence and then come to the conclusions later on. It sounds like they quickly jumped to suicide quickly. before having all the evidence and a proper investigation. So yes, you can conclude suicide first, but it should be after with after a thorough investigation. Megan, who's who do we always look at first if someone is suspected of being always. murdered? The, I mean, the spouse, the partner, you know, Who, it would be closest. him immediately. Whoever is closest to the victim, of course, you don't want to blame anyone, but we know that's the place to start. You usually start there and it's a process of elimination after yes. that. Yes. But it seems like the police just took his word as fact regarding the events of the day. Of course, they did have some of the key fob data and some of the security and the witnesses, but none of it eliminates the possibility that Sam wasn't telling the whole truth about this. Does he have any friends or family in the police department? Great question. I couldn't find much. His uncle's a lawyer. Okay. That's all I was I'm like, hmm. I'm right there with you, Megan. Okay. So just a few days later, the police announced that they were now putting cause of death back at suicide. What? This conclusion, they say, was mostly due to the peculiar circumstances and there not being any obvious evidence of an intruder no evidence of an attack and no signs of a struggle based on Ellen not having any defensive wounds. So they really hung their hat on the fact that the apartment was locked from the inside with that latch lock and that Ellen was home alone during the time that her fiance was out the gym and therefore no one else was in the apartment with her. And the latch lock is his story. So we only know that again from it's only based on his version of events. They really took it as fact. I'm very confusing. There was also a lack of any physical evidence on the body that could point to there being another person there. There was no potential assailant's DNA. The only DNA that they found on Ellen and on the blade was her own. But isn't that suspicious? Because shouldn't Sam's DNA be on her? And on if they shared this kitchen and like the fact that his DNA is not there is almost more telling than if it were there. Probably, unless she had just showered or, yeah, I, I mean, yes, they share, there should probably be some yeah. DNA unless something was wiped or cleaned or. Yep. Their short investigation also uncovered another factor that led them to this assumption. Remember, she had told her parents that she wanted to come home and she wanted to leave her job. Remember, Ellen had started seeing a psychiatrist prior to her death and she had been described by family and friends as being anxious. So the police are like, oh, well, this has to be a suicide. Besides the fact that there's no defensive wounds, the door's locked from the inside, we know that this woman has a history of mental illness. Of course, it's got to be the crazy woman. Did they speak to the psychiatrist? They did. And so they spoke to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist had prescribed medications for Ellen to treat her anxiety. So at different times, she was prescribed Ambien, Zoloft, Clonopin, Xanax. And most of these were anti-anxiety, and some of them also treated depression. The doctor said, and her notes both say that she did not have any suicidal ideation and nor did she have any risk factors for suicide. Did she report any abuse or anything of that nature? She did not. And the psychiatrist said she straight out asked if she was in an abusive relationship and, you know, there was no... There was no 
Well, she didn't answer, but why did she ask if she was in an abusive relationship? I don't She made it sound like it was part of like an intake form or something. I don't know for sure, but oh. it sounds like it might just be, you know, when you first start seeing someone, they'll go through like a list of questions, but I, okay. I'm not sure. I think that's a good point. I want to point out all of these medications have a potential side effect of suicidal ideation and or actions. Okay. And I don't think that it was her medication. Like, first of all, I obviously don't think this is a suicide, but I don't think that we can really say this because the autopsy showed that there were only trace amounts of clonopin and Ambien present in her blood and no other drugs. So even if some of these drugs cause suicidal ideation, it's usually either during the period of withdrawal or during a period of abuse, Yep. not these small amounts. So is it possible that these drugs led her to do this? Well, it's possible, but is it probable? Probably not. No, it's not very common. According to the FDA, about one in 500 people experience suicidal ideation from these types of drugs, and they can show as early as one week. But again, it's usually during a withdrawal period. Mm -hmm. And we also know Ambien can affect moods. Mm -hmm. And something that was brought up is it was strange that she had Ambien in her system because it was based it on the levels. They were able to tell that she had taken the Ambien sometime later in the day, but it was still too early to be near bedtime. So they did think it was strange because usually Ambien's a sleep aid. So there were some people that floated the idea that somebody else gave her Ambien to tranquilize her. But it's also possible that she didn't sleep all the night before and wanted to take a nap. And so she took an Ambien. That's There's hard. no way to know. Yeah. Her computer was also searched, and the search history revealed searches such as painless suicide, suicide methods, and quick suicide. So investigators seemed to believe that this was an example of her state of mind around the time of her death. But Megan, what do we know about this? What, that he could have done the searches? Exactly. You don't know who's sitting at that computer. And not I mean, only that, if you're looking up painless suicide and quick suicide, then you end up stabbing yourself 20 times. I was going to... I was just going to say, um, nothing about her her death seemed painless no. at all. And the searches were done at strange times. So initially, this information didn't even emerge. It was like years later, allegedly Sam's family had possession of her phone and her computer all this time and not her family. That's weird. They also looked through her text messages because, of course, they would do that, right? Right. And she had expressed to her mother on several different occasions that she was having difficulties um, one text said, I'm starting the med. I know you don't understand, but I can't keep living this way. So again, they're using all of these things to build this narrative that this woman was suicidal and clearly killed herself. Lastly, the investigators claim to have hired a neuropathologist to determine if Ellen's spinal cord was damaged. Now, why is this so important? Because if the spinal cord was hit but not severed, then she could have continued to stab yeah, herself, herself yeah. and maybe not have felt the pain because she went numb. Do you know, I was going to say that, but I was also going to point out that if it was severely uh, damaged that she couldn't continue yeah, to. Exactly. That's the other side of it. It's the flip side. So the police, again, going on this idea that it was suicide, their neuropathologists allegedly claimed that the spinal cord was not severed, but it was hit enough in that she probably went numb, which is why she was able to do that deep um, gash in her chest, which is the one that probably is the one that killed her. So this poor family, I mean, the death originally a suicide, then a homicide. At some point, it was changed to undetermined and now back to a suicide. Once again, the family finds out through the media that this case is now a suicide. I wonder why the lack of communication with the family or just the basic civility, like respect to show to the family. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it seems like in this case, of course, you never want to just rely on one side, but the police haven't said too much. So it's easier to rely on the Greenberg family. But it sounds like they were being dismissed from the it start. It does sound like that. Let's talk a little bit about the possibility that Ellen had taken her own life. So we already talked about the fact that stabbing yourself is not quick nor painless. 
Megan, it's also very unlikely. Only 1 to 3% of suicide attempts include using a knife, but that's even lower if you look at just women. And also, individuals who do use a knife to kill themselves, it's usually to slit their wrists, not to stab themselves in the neck, in the head, in the chest, etc. This just rarely happens, and that's just the reality of it. Yeah, and she also was stabbed through her clothes. And that's also rare. People that stab themselves usually will lift up the clothes. There's no reason to make it more difficult. Yep. Females who do commit suicide, it's often by firearm, suffocation, or poisoning. Mm -hmm. Ellen had many smaller wounds, and they explained this away by saying it was hesitation wounds. She was testing it out before being able to actually go through with it. And this is just so disrespectful. I've definitely heard of that, but I think they're just explaining away Anything that would contradict this finding of suicide right now. That's what it sounds like to me. And you have to wonder why. Why? Yeah, why are they so stuck on the suicide theory? I'm thinking it's not. I think they're stuck on it because they couldn't find any evidence. And therefore, it makes it so much harder to prove homicide if you have no evidence to prove homicide. And so it's like a default. It's mm-hmm. just easier to assume that it was her by her I, own hand. I agree. And I also think they didn't process the scene correctly. And they know that they screwed up. And if they now say it's a homicide... They're going to look really bad. From the moment they got to that apartment, they weren't processing it as a crime scene. They were processing it as a scene of a suicide. Remember, there were those knives in the sink. They didn't take DNA. They didn't check the fiance's nails for DNA. They didn't check to see if he had any wounds on him. I wonder why they didn't do that from the start. They I mean, it, was do- a, it sounds like it was just a mistake. Maybe they didn't handle a lot of homicides. Maybe they didn't handle a lot of domestics. I'm not sure. And it- that's why I'm wondering if they're sticking with suicide because they're embarrassed of how they really screwed this up. That could be. The family never believed that Ellen took her own life. And as a lot of families do, they launched their own investigation. Megan, we see this a lot. When families aren't satisfied with an outcome, they go ahead and do it themselves, same as we would do if it was our loved one. Absolutely. The number, it's interesting, Megan, their number one goal was to have the cause of death changed to either homicide or undetermined. Do you know why? Because then they would have to keep investigating. Yeah, the case cannot be reopened until the manner of death is changed. Yep. There's nothing to investigate. Yep, I've seen that happen in a number of cases where it's called suicide and then that's it. The investigation stops. Nothing, you can't go to court with a suicide. If the medical examiner will not adjust that finding, you're dead in the water. They can't subpoena files. They can't do anything. They had, they wanted to get their hands on their daughter's autopsy. Yeah. They couldn't legally. They had to pay for it. They actually paid to get their hands on crime scene photos and the medical examiner's report. That's just gross. The family filed a suit with their attorney, Joe Pedraza, against the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office in hopes to have the manner of death change. They also got their hands on the autopsy report and the crime scene photos by working with the former state attorney general, Walter Cohen. With his help, they were able to gain access to important information concerning the case, such as the police case file. And this was really difficult because the police would not share anything with them. The police said, if you want to see anything, you can come to the station. You cannot take pictures. You cannot take notes. You cannot bring your lawyer, but you can come see it. You can just review it here, basically. But you can't. That's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. So they retained pretty much a dream team. They retained a team of experts. You're going to recognize many of these names. Okay. First, they sent their files to Cyril Weck. Oh, yes. Cyril Weck is a total badass in the forensic pathology world. He was, he's handled something like close to 15,000 autopsies. Um, I also know that he's done some of the famous ones like the JFK. Yep. He did Sharon Tate. John Bonet. I was going to say John Bonet. Yeah, yep. he's he was the um, the president too. I don't know if it's called president of the uh, Academy of Forensic Sciences. Mm-hmm. So yep. he's he's like top notch. Yeah, he's he's who you want on your team. Yeah, 
With his help, it, they brought up how the location of the many stab wounds to the back of Ellen's neck was not only unusual for a suicide, but that the actual volume and the location of the wounds almost makes it impossible. If not impossible, improbable. I don't even see why you need Cyril Weck to say that. I mean, I it's just like it get, gets more credibility, but I know. it seems it seems so obvious. Yeah, I think they were just looking to bring in, you know, people yeah, that had. And of course, you know, we also know Cyril Weck is a forensic pathologist from Pittsburgh, and they were in Philly, so maybe I mean a they local. they obviously needed someone to say it because no one's listening. But I just can't believe that this wasn't know. you know just a you know yep. almost obvious to the officers investigating. I totally it. agree. They also called on Tom Brennan, who is a retired 25-year state police veteran and the police chief of Dauphin County. He volunteered to work on Ellen's case pro bono. Mm. He's made a lot of movement in this case. Most of what he's focusing on is trying to counter the claim that the lack of defensive wounds means that it was not a homicide. And this is where this idea of a blitz attack comes in that you mentioned before, Megan. Okay. And again, a blitz attack is an attack that happens too quickly for a victim to react. And this typically results in the victim not having the opportunity to defend themselves. Hence, no defensive wounds. And this also might be why neighbors didn't hear commotion or screams. Mm -hmm. It makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. A fresh look at this case also revealed that blood evidence was overlooked in the first investigation. Um, Brennan was also able to point out some new blood evidence. The crime scene photos revealed that Ellen had a dry stream of blood running horizontally across her face from her nose to her cheek. So this would be evidence that at some point she was laying on her side, right? Because the blood, but she was found sitting upright. Mm -hmm. So this detail goes against the assumption that Ellen was never moved. Seems like a pose. Right? So the counterpoint was, well, maybe she stabbed herself, lost consciousness, fell to her side, got back up and, con and continued stabbing herself. That seems but unlikely. But this blood flow, you know, this blood flow really baffled many people on this new investigative team. There's also um, this gentleman by the name of Guy D'Andrea, who he used to be a homicide prosecutor, and then he went into private practice, but he was also volunteering his time on Ellen's case. And he looked at this and said, no, no, that blood path defies gravity. This is not, none of this is making sense. Mm -hmm. I can't even believe this was new. How did they miss this the first time around? But this really means that she need to, she must have been moved unless she moved on her own, which is unlikely. All right. Another piece of evidence that was re-examined was this existence of the neuropathologist report. Remember that they tried to say that the stab wounds to Ellen's neck would not have impaired her to the point where she couldn't continue stabbing. Right. Well, this part is very interesting because the police said that it was a woman by the name of Lucy Rourke Adams who had filled out that report, but they were not able to get any copy of this report. They went to the medical examiner's office, they went to the police, and this report did not exist. They were told that Maybe they didn't have it, or maybe they don't know what happened. So why didn't they go to her? Well, that's what they did. They could not find a copy, so they go directly to Dr. Rourke Adams, and shockingly, she claims she has no recollection of ever performing that analysis. So that's an outright fabrication, it well, sounds like? Yeah, so it's possible. She didn't remember, but she said, she actually said, hey, I don't work for free, and I have no invoice or no bill for that, plus there's no report. So yeah, that sounds really suspicious. I mean, did the police lie? Had they used a different neuropathologist and mistakenly said it was her? Okay. Either way, something smells here, right? Yeah, yeah. Then Tom Brennan, who we have spoke about before, he also made another huge leap in the case when he discovered that the medical examiner's office had actually held on to a piece of Ellen's spinal cord. So now this new team was able to 
look at whether a stab wound would have severed Ellen's spinal cord and whether they could support or refute this decision that there was no significant spinal cord damage. Yeah, so they bring in forensic pathologist Wayne Ross to examine the specimen, and they and he concluded that the stab wound penetrated Ellen's cranial cavity and severed the cranial nerves and her brain. Wow. So he con- this led him to conclude that Ellen would have experienced severe pain and an impaired loss of consciousness, hence not enabling her to continue on with stabbing herself. That makes sense to me. So this sounds like a pretty strong case here. Well, guess who? Then they bring in another superstar. They bring in Mr. Henry Lee. Oh, we know him too. We know another, Henry Lee. Another rock star in the forensic pathology world. In fact, I think him and Cyril have covered some of the same cases. Like yep. he's worked on the JFK and John Bonet as well. I think there's been some overlap when they but go to the top experts. Lee was the most, I think he was probably the most known for his um, role in the O.J. Simpson trial. Absolutely. Yeah. So Lee concludes that according to the number of stamp wounds and the blood stain patterns, this was most likely not a suicide. Shocking. Right? <laughs> Still, there's more. Gregory McDonald is the dean of the School of Health Sciences at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine and the chief deputy coroner for Montgomery County. So these are real experts yeah. here. And he also took issue, but his issue was with the shallow stab wounds. So he did say that the shallow wounds were not usually indicative of homicide, as very rarely there is hesitation in a homicide attack. And that it would have been possible, in fact, for Ellen to inflict the shallow wounds. But he also explains that four of the much deeper wounds and the force needed to create those is not typical of suicide with a sharp object. And also a deep gash on her head. She also had a gash on her head that was two and a half inches long. That's typically not part of a suicide through stabbing. Right. So like many others, he made note of the fact that Ellen's stab wounds were not indicative of a suicide. And I believe he also brought up that idea that stabbing through clothing is not typical in cases of self-inflicted wounds. Mm -hmm. Then we had Robert Keppel, who was a retired chief criminal investigator for the Washington State Attorney's General Office. Now, this guy investigated high-profile cases such as Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer. I know Keppel. He interviewed Bundy. There you go. I know you know all these guys. I do. (laughs) One of the main things he pointed out was that it was strange that the knife was left in Ellen's chest and also that many of the wounds, it was clear that somebody else was doing something to her out of anger, perhaps. Hmm, Okay. Lastly, Greenberg's team has been using a new tool called forensic photogrammetry. Have you heard of this before, Megan? Briefly. Okay. So this is a technique where they use software that combines photos of crime scenes from different angles, really allowing them to triangulate the position of objects in the photos, and create a 3D model of the crime scene. Got it. That's what I knew. Yeah. It's pretty cool what this software could do because they use it to measure skid marks for car crashes or bullet trajectories, shoe prints, tire prints, blood spatter. It's really super cool, and I bet we'll be hearing a lot more about this. But in order to utilize this method, there is certain data from a crime scene that's needed. So you need photos that have been taken with the same camera and settings. Mm -hmm. And the photos need to be from different angles and positions so that the software can work out the geometry of the space. Mm -hmm. There also needs to be objects in the photos whose measurements are known so they could be used as a reference and important physical features of the scene. So they're doing the best they can, but they don't have access to everything they need and they didn't take the original photos, so they're working with what they have. That's hard. Yeah. So bottom line, this method has allowed them to recreate a picture as to what happened to Ellen and whether or not she could have realistically created the wounds found on her body. I urge you all to look up these images online. 
So remember I mentioned the current lawyer is assisting them in filing this lawsuit against the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office. They've been utilizing this tool as a way to prove that it would have been impossible for someone to create those injuries on their own bodies. And they used Ellen's anatomical and physiological features, such as height, weight, location of her organs, etc., to determine whether she could have inflicted these wounds. And their analysis said, nope, this is, there's no way she could have realistically stabbed herself as many times as she was stabbed, especially since two of her wounds went so deep that it would have paralyzed her or at the very least caused such severe pain that she would not have been able to continue stabbing herself. Yeah, no surprise here for me. They're also starting to look back at that swing bar that was so important to the police. Remember, they said that- Yeah, the swing bar lock. Remember, they were saying, you know, this had to be suicide because she was inside and there was this lock. However, this is being called into question now because if you go to YouTube, and I urge you all to do this, you can find videos on how to manipulate a swing bar lock, like the one on the door of Ellen and Sam's apartment. And it is actually easy and it's frightening because that means like when you're staying in a hotel and you think you're safe, like I know. If, if I you're, was just thinking that. If you're paranoid, don't look it up, but it actually isn't too difficult to manipulate. I've seen it done with rubber bands, with index cards. They're, so wow. it's possible. So her, So the Greenberg's team is also you know, looking into that as well. Okay. Very strangely, recently, they're now saying that there wasn't anything indicative of suicide on the computers. And it has not been clarified as to why this change has occurred. Like it's unclear as to, was it fabricated or I'm not, I'm not quite sure with it, but that is another area of focus. But regardless, I don't think it matters because we don't know if she was the one searching it. And if she was, she did not kill herself in a painless way anyway. Right. And then the the other focus is Ellen's medications and whether or not the side effects of suicidal ideation could be to blame for what happened here. But again, it's rare for it to happen. And when it does happen, it's in the case of withdrawal or abuse. So what? So where is Samuel Goldberg? So Samuel Goldberg is now 38 years old and he's a married father of two living in New York. He did remain in contact with the family for a year or so following the death. And then um, he stopped you know, communicating with the family. As far as I know, he's still working as a television producer. And there has been, luckily, there has been renewed interest in the case because just this past January of 2021, as I mentioned in the intro, it marks the 10-year anniversary. I think we'll see things moving forward a little bit. I mentioned about that civil suit that was filed. That was back in October 2019. But just this past, well, last year, January 2020, it proceeded past the motion to dismiss stage. So the trial is set to begin in 2021, which is this year. Okay, yeah. Wow, that's something to keep us updated on. Yeah. If and when this trial does occur, we will for sure do a follow-up and provide an update as things develop. In the meantime, what can you do to bring justice for this family? There is a Facebook page in Ellen's honor called Justice for Ellen. And at this point, there's over 20,000 supporters And most people go to that page, can then sign a change.org petition calling for this case to be reopened. So I urge people to go to the Facebook page, go to change.org and, you know, add your name to this petition. And I'm going to go to this petition. I'm definitely, I don't, this case is, to me, it's just clearly a homicide. And I'm not saying who committed the homicide because I think it could have been someone else. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be necessarily fiance, but this is not a suicide. So Please go out if you can, you know, research this. And if you feel the same way we do, go to this petition, sign it. 
Amy, thank you so much for this really intriguing case. I really hope to hear um, some updates in the future. All right. And we have some questions today, Megan. Questions from the patrons. All right. All right. So Julia says, what case do you think the media has most hijacked in regards to the narrative? As in, the guilt was 100% established before the defendant ever had a day in court. Wow. Good question, Julia. I love this question because I talk about this all the time in my class. You cannot listen to media because they, as she says, they have a narrative and it's not always correct. Megan, do you remember the Central Park Five case? Absolutely. Do you remember what the media did to those poor young boys? I do, actually. I thought that was terrible. (sighs) Front page, every newspaper in New York, Wolfpack, preying on this woman. This teen gang rapes a jogger in Central Park. Teens were wilding out. They just want... Do you remember what Trump did, actually? No. He took out a whole page in, I believe it was the New York Times, don't quote me, and he said, bring back the death penalty for the Central Park jogger perpetrator. Actually, now that you said it, I did remember it. Yeah, they definitely did. And it turns out they were innocent. They were innocent. That's a, that's a really good example, yes. Amy. What about you? What are you thinking? So I'm going to give you a flip side example here, because one that comes to my mind is the opposite. And this was the Jennifer Levin murder in Central Park in 1989 by Robert Chambers. Do you is remember that the this? preppy murder case? The preppy murder case. And this was completely opposite. The media went to great lengths to establish him as like this young, handsome gentleman who would never have done, you know, anything harmful and to establish her as kind of, I think, like a a loose girl who would go into the park. So I think they victimized her. And it wasn't until later on when a video leaked of him making fun of breaking her neck or, you know, killing her that the media turned on him. But in the beginning, they treated him like, you know, he could do no wrong. So that would be my example. That's really interesting to turn that around because usually we see it more when the media is trying to establish the guilt before a defendant has their day in court. But they also, they get victims' characters a lot when you see women who are victimized of sex crimes. Yep, I agree. Excellent. Thank you so much for that question. Then we have a question from Thomas. Thomas wants to know, what are some of your favorite podcasts to listen to, true crime related or not? Oh my gosh, Amy's got it. I mean, do I even need to say my favorite podcast? (laughs) Armchair Expert with Dax. Oh my God. Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. And when he does experts on experts, he brings in experts, obviously. And it's so funny, but it's also such intelligent conversation. He's so vulnerable. I love that podcast. I hope you are listening, Dax. I love you. (laughs) I also love Work Life with Adam Grant. I don't know that one. So he's an organizational psychologist and he is brilliant. To t- tell you the truth, I used to listen to only true crime, but since I do my own true crime podcast, I don't listen to true crime anymore. Oh, I wish I could say the same. I'm what the you, complete yeah. opposite. What I mean, about you? What are you listening I, to these I'm days? I'm so obsessed with true crime podcasts. I would say one of my favorite ones is Shattered Souls by Karen Smith. She is a former forensic investigator, and she talks about her cases that she handled and how she processed the crime scene and you know, how going to court was. And, you know, she has a really great delivery and she gives her victims real dignity. I think she's incredible. So I love that one. I think um, I'm like, I'll I'll listen to tons of like Datelines and whatnot, just because I always like that format. I like Smartless. Oh, yes, that's a good one. But do you know that 
really because that started with Armchair Expert, because Jason Bateman was one of his first guests, and it was one of the best interviews I've ever heard. I actually do know that, and I appreciate it. And I do like Dax also. (laughs) And I also like, um, James got me into, for news, No Agenda. Oh, yeah. No Agenda I absolutely love No Agenda. I feel like I really am going to, like, be informed Mm -hmm. about the news and not be, like, persuaded or sold, you know. I do listen to The Daily also, which I know some people think has an agenda, which it might, but that's one of my go-to news ones. I understand. All right. Thanks for the great question. Thank you. And then lastly, we have Latasha's question. So she had a couple of questions and they're all so interesting. So her first question is talking about how a child's brain develops differently when they witness violence or go through traumatic events. So this could be hours of conversation, right? This is a huge topic. Could be a whole course. A whole course. What we can say, well, what, what I'll try to say in a nutshell is that trauma in early childhood can disrupt an individual's attachment. We, right. we talk about attachment disorders all the time. There could be cognitive delays. There can be impaired emotional regulation. It could also lead to social and general anxiety, social withdrawal, depression. And we know all of these are also related to crime. So this goes back to the victimization, the, the link between victimization and criminal offending. Yeah, I'm thinking um, also uh, when we talk about theories, we talk about learning theory, unfortunately. And this is not true of all, certainly not, you know, people who witness violence. But there is something um, where violence is reinforced because you, you've watched it at a young age and it, it makes it more likely that the cycle of violence will continue. Yes, definitely. She would like to know... What made us want to focus on crime? Um, It was always crime for me. It was always inequality for me, but inequality, I think, is most evident when we look at our criminal justice system. So I think for me, that's it's kind of what got me there. For me, it was criminal law that I found fascinating. It was probably popularized by early media exposure. Um, we'll just blame my mom. I always do. But um, I was fascinated always with crime and criminal law and just being involved in the system. And I still am. I find that there's nothing Nothing bores me about it. So I I just think there's endless areas that we keep delving into. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that before. It's like every single point in the system is something fascinating. Yes. Something that I would reform at every single point. Every single point. Yeah. I hope that, you know, I think like some of our research, like Mm -hmm. I know I wrote a lot about bail reform and there's Mm -hmm. been bail reform movement. So I feel like um, a part of the process is, you know, just contributing that. And you write so much about wrongful convictions and and also about education in prison. Mm-hmm. I feel like your writing is part of that. Like when we get together as academics and yeah. start, you know. I'd like to think so. I mean, I'd like to think yeah. that we're part of some of the change. Yes. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include CBS, PBS, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office Autopsy Report, Oxygen, Photomodeler, and 48 Hours. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.